will be reading from 1 Samuel 2, verse 1 through 11. I'm bursting with God. News. I'm walking on air. I'm laughing at my rivals. I'm dancing my salvation. Nothing and no one is holy like God. No rock, mountain like our God. Don't dare talk pretentiously. Not a word of boasting, ever. For God knows what's going on. He takes the measure of everything that happens. The weapons of the strong are smashed to pieces. While the weak are infused with fresh strength, the well-fed are out begging in the streets for crusts. While the hungry are getting second helpings, the barren woman has a house full of children. While the mother of many is bereft, God brings death and God brings life, brings down to the grave and raises up. God brings poverty and God brings wealth. He lowers, he also lifts up. He puts poor people on their feet again. He rekindles burned out lives with fresh hope, restoring dignity and respect to their lives, a place in the sun. For the very structures of earth are God's. He has laid out his operations on a firm foundation. He protectively cares for his faithful friends, step by step, but leaves the wicked to stumble in the dark. No one makes it in this life by sheer muscle. God's enemies will be blasted out of the sky, crashed in a heap and burned. God will set things right all over the earth. He'll give strength to his king. He'll set his anointed on top of the world. Our story today is taken from 1 Samuel 1 and 2. I think you'll appreciate the detail of the story because it goes to uh, such trouble to illustrate not only the situation and the pain that someone is feeling, but the response that they uh, give after prayer has changed something for them. Today I wanted to look at the prayers of our mothers, and it, it needs to be a series, but from year to year to year. So if I remember, which is 50-50 for next year, I'll uh, do a prayer of our mother that's another story in Scripture. If I don't remember, you'll get something else. But uh, my intention is to, for several years, talk about the prayers of our mothers uh, on Mother's Day. Because we've been developing, as you know, or, or working with the theme of prayer, and because Prayer is such an important part or needs to be of our existences and our lives and I want to just take this opportunity from Scripture to encourage us in a couple kinds of, of, of prayer. Our story takes place in Ramah and Gilead. Not that that means anything to you and I, but a little portion of Israel there. And there is a man who lives there named Elkanah. And he is fortunate or unfortunate, I don't know how you want to see it, um, but he has two wives, Hannah and Panina. How many of you knew that? All right, somebody knew that. Two wives. Now all I've got to say about that is that, um, well I have plenty to say about that actually, but the... <laughs> But the sermon isn't about that today. I think sometimes when we think about the way in which we order or structure a society and attach moral values to that in the contemporary age, we need to be somewhat careful. Because in scripture, we don't have Elkanah condemned either by the priest or by his God for this arrangement that he has. There is some strife 
between the wives that we read about. And we can derive from Scripture a biblical ideal of one man and one woman. I won't argue with any of that. Um, but these, this, this man and his wives live in a family unit and one of the wives is fertile. She has sons and daughters. The other wife is barren and has no children. And Elkanah loves them both. And that it comes through beautifully in the text. So we're going to take a look at this situation and how it, 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 it evolves into a series of prayers and what those prayers might mean in our experience. Because at least in this contemporary uh, setting, I'm hoping none of you have two wives. And if you do, I know a good lawyer. Our friend Hannah is uh, barren, it says in verse 2. Year after year, Elkanah went up from his worship, his town, to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty in Shiloh. Now this is back in the era when Eli was the chief priest in Shiloh and his sons Hophni and Phinehas ministered. And we learn later, later in 1 Samuel that those boys are evil men and Eli not the parent he should have been. But nevertheless, this is where the Israelites in this era travel. They go to see Eli the priest once a year and to offer their annual sacrifice. Whenever the day, verse 4, came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat of the sacrifice uh, to his wife Panina and all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. He loved her and he felt sorry for her. And in typical male fashion, he tried to comfort her in his own way, as we will see. The comfort goes something like this. Am, am I not more meaningful to you than ten sons? How many, women, how many women have been comforted by their husbands trying to just say, you know, really it's about me and how, how valuable I should be to you? You ever been comforted that way? Don't raise your hand. Thank you. You women are so generous. Even my wife didn't raise her hand. And I know she's been comforted that way before. Um, yeah, it's an amazing, amazing phenomenon. And men, we can sit in good company today because this tradition of uh, male comfort goes back thousands of years as it sits in Scripture. He loved her and the Lord had closed her room. Verse 6, And because the Lord had closed her room, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Aha. Not a happy home. Good reason to have one wife. All right. I see a lot of the women out there nodding. <laughs> oh, yes. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Now, isn't that the irony? Elkanah's given her a double portion of the meat and she's not eating because she's all upset. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? There it is, man, that effort to comfort once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh Hannah stood up now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple in bitterness of soul do you catch the mood bitterness of soul this isn't 
frustration, mild disappointment, a little bit of anxiety, bitterness of soul. She is tired of Panina and her children. Her husband means a lot to her, but not as much as ten sons would. Her womb is closed. Her status is affected. Her security is affected. Her place is affected. Her life is affected. And she is bitter in her soul. I'm not down on her for this. I say this as much to ground us in the reality of life's hardships. That we ourselves are sometimes embittered by what it is that we live with or what it is we endure. But she was weeping much. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And it's interesting to me that this prayer is not recorded. It's not recorded. Any of you see Last Holiday with Queen Latifah? Okay, my four or five people who watch movies have seen that. Good for you. Do you remember when she is singing in the choir on Sunday and she goes into the why me, Lord, why me? She, it's a woman diagnosed with a, she thinks a, a terminal condition in her brain and she's at choir praising God and she's looking at her life and there's nothing she can pinpoint that she's done wrong and she just starts into a chorus of why me? Don't you think that's probably what Hannah was praying? Why me? This Panina, she is not a nice woman and you have given her sons and daughters. Lord, why me? Elkanah loves me and I want to give him children. Lord, why me? Have you ever prayed the why me prayer? Oh, come on. I'm feeling bad. A lot of people here are more spiritually mature than I am. Well, I'm in good company with Hannah, at least. We've prayed the why me prayer. O Lord Almighty, she made a vow, saying, if you will only look upon your servant's misery, if you'll only remember me, and forget not your servant. Okay, three times, Hebrew parallelism here. If you will look upon me, if you will remember me, if you will not forget me. Three times. Lord, I'm here. Lord, I'm here. Lord, I'm here. But give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. That's a a very serious commitment. Not only will I give him to your service, Lord, but he will be a Nazarene. Well, Nazarite in the Hebrew context. A Nazarite was one whose parent, or in this case, uh, in some cases, the, the person themselves took vows. We can name some famous Nazarites. Perhaps the most famous was who? Samson. A razor never touched his head. He could drink no strong drink. There were a number of restrictions that went to going into the Nazarite vow. And Hannah pledged to raise her son a Nazarite. Samson was the most famous, perhaps. Who was another very famous one? 
John the Baptist, excellent. Yes, John the Baptist wore his odd clothes and ate his odd diet and did his thing in part because of these vows. He was a Nazarite. It was kind of an extreme thing even in the day. But she said, if you will give me a son, I will not only give him to you, but I will give him to you as pure and undefiled and untouched as possible. And she kept on praying to the Lord. Now how, how important is that? I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. Help me, hear me. I will do this for you if you will listen to me. And she keeps on praying. I don't know about you, but my mother kept on praying. It should be perfectly obvious to you by now that I was not a perfect child. No. Pretty good one, I think, but not perfect. She had plenty of praying to do, and she kept on praying. Part of prayer, it looks like, is persistence. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How, will you, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Wow, there's a whole sermon there, isn't it? He looks and he sees, but he doesn't see. He understands, but he has no clue. He judges, but he's completely off base. And he calls her on something she's not guilty of. Insult to injury. Here she is dealing with this problem. She's already had to put up with Panina for the year. And on the way to the festival, Panina has been giving her a particularly bad time bragging about her children, commenting on how beautiful the girls look as they go to the temple, rubbing it in. I don't even know how to do it. I think you need feminine genes to really succeed at this. But you all know how to do it. And Panina was giving her the ninth degree and she's not hungry and she's crying and she's upset. She finally gets there and she's petitioning the Lord and the high priest gives her a bad time. When will you put away your wine? Now here's the interesting insult. She was pledging in prayer to raise her child without strong drink. And she's accused of being a drunk. I think the word, where's Richard? Lemon juice on a paper cut? Does that uh, sound about right? Are you feeling her pain yet? Good, I'm, somebody is feeling her pain. I like empathetic uh, listeners. Not so, my Lord, Anna replied, verse 15. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I love the honesty. There's such integrity in those words. There's such power in being able to name the truth of where we stand, isn't there? Some of us have to go to therapy for years to learn to name the truth of where we stand. We're in denial. We're playing games with ourselves. We've deceived ourselves into believing one thing or another about our position in life. Hannah has no delusions. She looks at the priest and says, no, I'm not drunk, but I am a deeply troubled person. I've not been drinking. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I love that. In those words are captured 
all of our feelings, our hates, our loves, our passions, our desires. In those words are encapsulated the dreams that we hold closest to our hearts and those things that we long for. In that acknowledgement, I am a deeply troubled woman and I was pouring my soul out to the Lord is a place from which we can only be lifted up. In this acknowledgement is an expression of the deepest part of our humanity, our sadness, our angst, of our jealousies, of our trauma. To not have a child, particularly not have a male child in her day, was disaster. It was disaster. And though she had a wonderful husband, it says, he gave her a double portion and he loved her. And he tried to console her. I mean, I don't find this kind of description much in the Old Testament at all. This was a nice guy. He was really trying here. And she was miserable. Because of the pressure of society, the value that she would hold in her marriage, in her life, and in her culture was dependent upon having a son. And she's pouring out herself to God. And if you haven't done that lately, mothers, fathers, children, take a moment to do so. Pour yourself out to God. Pour your soul out to God. What a relief she found. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Different culture than ours, isn't it? When you're troubled and I ask you, are you okay? How you doing? What's your first tendency to say, ladies? Uh, I'm okay. Right? You could have just had your left arm cut off and you'd hold on to it and kind of try to wince at me and say, I'll be fine. That's our culture. We don't, we don't want to know the truth about how somebody is, do we? In some ways. And so we shield everybody from the reality. More importantly, and to the point, we definitely don't want other people seeing or knowing how we are. And that lack of disclosure I think translates into our relationship with God too. Sometimes I think we mince words with God in our joy and in our sorrow. And in the culture of ancient Israel, she felt no such compulsion. Don't judge me to be a wicked woman. I am simply speaking out of my anguish and my sorrow. Life is not good for her despite the fact that it would seem to be good for her. Eli answered, Go in peace, shalom, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way, and she ate, and her face was no longer downcast. Something healing had happened, ladies, 
and gentlemen, in this moment, something of pouring out our soul to God, something in that moment of interacting and saying, look, it's not about my wickedness. It is about the anguish of my soul. Something about this experience of giving herself completely over to the act of prayer and pouring out herself before God, pouring out her soul before God, lent itself to her being able to get up, accept the blessing of the priest after he had judged her and misjudged her, leave the place, eat, wash her face, and no longer feel the way that she had felt, no longer be downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. I love the honesty of Scripture. Enough about that. Because I asked the Lord for him. It would seem that the word Samuel in the Hebrew is closest to the word which translates roughly, heard of God. Child is an answer to the cry of the soul for this woman. Hannah would dedicate Samuel. Elkanah would go again for the annual sacrifice and Hannah would not go. She would say, let me stay and wean the boy. And tradition has it that at three years old he was weaned and she took him to the temple Verse 24, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and they brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Then when they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy Eli to Eli, and she said to him, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Three years old. Now you would think that the prayer of the mother would be very different than the one that comes forward. But as Brittany read, the prayer that comes forward is a... a, I'm sorry, not Brittany. The text, huh? Ruthie, sorry. Isaac is switching that around. It's Ruthie read. The text that comes forward is called the Old Testament Magnificat. Who prays the Magnificat uh, as we call it? Mary. Mary's prayer at the conception of Jesus is the Magnificat. But this is called the Magnificat of the Old Testament because it is prophetic. It is a psalm of rejoicing. And it has a a, a format that's very similar to the Magnificat of the New Testament. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. That's an important uh, little piece there. When she says, my horn is lifted high, the Lord my horn is lifted high in the Lord, she is speaking of the place in which she finds herself in her family and in her society. My status has changed. In the Lord's answering my prayers, I have been taken from down here and lifted up to up here. I have been lifted high. My place has changed. My life has been repaired. The big hole in my heart has been filled And she praises, my mouth boasts over my enemies, Panina. For I delight in your deliverance, Lord. 
Then she says of the Lord, there is no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Sounds like the praise we pray and sing. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance for the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. He judges. The bows of the warriors are broken but those who, are, who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children but she who has had many sons pines away. There's something about that three-verse segment that is the upside-down gospel encapsulated in an Old Testament way so beautifully. Jesus preached it all the time, didn't he? He taught it in terms of the opposite. Blessed are you not who rejoice, but you who mourn. Blessed are you who are free? No, who are persecuted. Blessed are you who... The upside-down kingdom. He says in the Old Testament, every valley shall be made, no, every mountain shall be made a valley, right? And every valley be exalted, lifted up. It's this switch, this notion that those who have gone without, those who have suffered, trade places somehow with those who are strong, those who have been in control. It's a hopeful gospel for the downtrodden. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He stumbles and he, he humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with the princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon him he set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli, the priest. It's the prayer of our mothers. Hannah had the strength to pour out her soul. She had the strength to be wrongly accused. She was judged an evil woman when in reality her motives were right. She was loved, but she was downtrodden, missing in her culture the best part of womanhood. In desperation, she pleads with the Lord to see her, to hear her, to not forget her, and promises that she'll raise this child in the strictest way possible and present him as a living offering before the Lord to serve his life. And these things she does. And at the end of the day, she's not bitter. At the end of the day, she's not... We don't hear her praying that, that the child will be treated well at the uh, temple or that uh, she might be comforted for missing him. She rejoices in what God has done. She celebrates that her horn has been lifted up 
that her enemies can no longer rail against her. That God is the one who sets things in order, who establishes how things will be. That's comforting to her. I think today, New Testament theology is just a little different than that, and our theology today might be just a little different than that. We don't usually attribute to God the evil things that occur as well as the good. But for her, God is in control of this situation. Her faith is in the one who is stronger than she. She turns to God in this time of sorrow and trouble and is rewarded. And she rejoices. And she prophesies. If you go to the last words of the prayer, she speaks of a king. You realize, of course, that Israel had never had a king up to that time. Only judges, only prophets. And in this prophecy, it is her son, Samuel, who will find and anoint Saul. It is her son, Samuel, who will find and anoint David. It is her son, Samuel, who will bring news to God that Israel wants a king and be commissioned to find one. And she speaks prophetically of the exalted position of this king. And there's another interpretation of that because in the language of the Hebrew in the time of Samuel, to be anointed a king is the same word as the anointed one or Messiah. And so there's a sense in which she's prophesying of an exalted king or Messiah who comes. And he's of the tribe of Judah, of the lineage of, well, the king will, yeah, David, the Messiah will come. So it's all here in this, this prayer. Today I want to uh, take a moment and uh, let all of you recognize the mothers amongst us. We have a, a track that we're going to play, and as that music plays, we're going to invite children first to come collect roses here in the buckets and take to their mothers and grandmothers. And then uh, we want to honor all of the women of the church in this way. So if the CD is ready, let's hear that track. And children, please come collect roses for your mothers.